reading today is Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chloe. I'm all good? Okay. Cool. <clears throat> um, I did it again. If there are any kids, the guys can go. All right. Um, we're good. Um, continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, how are we doing? Okay? Cool. Um, that's, that's the title that, you can hardly see that, can't you? Um, the title that we've given it is To Seek and Save the Lost. That's really the mission of Jesus in a nutshell. Um, boiled down, really, Luke's Gospel shows us who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and really what it means for us to follow him. And the first nine chapters, really, they, they have been showing us who Jesus is, right? He's the Son of God, uh, sent, from, sent from heaven to bring, to bring healing, to bring deliverance to the lost sinners, and to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And then the next nine-ish chapters, uh, after Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, they, they really show us what it then means to follow this Jesus, right? If, if Jesus is the king of God's kingdom on earth, what does it mean then to be part of his kingdom? What does it mean to follow after him? And we, we actually learn this by uh, kind of following along with Jesus and his disciples as they journey to Jerusalem. And along the journey, these, these lessons of what does it mean to be part of his kingdom, they come in the form of the sayings and the teachings of Jesus and in many, many parables, which is, we get one today. Uh, chapter 9 begins to answer that question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? 
And the section that, that Alan looked at last week, which is verses 21 to 24, it tells us that as disciples of Jesus, we are to be messengers. We're messengers, right? Every disciple of Jesus has been given the, his gospel message, and we are to go and, and, and communicate that message to everyone, urge them to believe it as well. The second part of chapter 10 is we have another side of being a disciple. Here, instead of gospel messaging, we're called to gospel neighboring, right? We're called to be messengers, but we're also called to be neighbors. As gospel messengers, we're called to share the gospel message, right? We speak it. We, we share it with those out there, okay? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the peace and the, the reconciliation, the eternal life that he offers. We share that message. But as gospel neighbors, we're called to actually embody that message in our own lives, We're called to be shaped by that gospel message and actually live it out. We're called to meet the needs of the people around us, whether they believe the message or not. Gospel messengers equipped with the message of God's love and grace and gospel neighbors actually embodying and extending God's love and grace. Cool? Let me pray one more time and then we'll look at what gospel neighboring looks like. Uh, Lord, we are here because of you. And we are here because of your grace in our lives. And would, you, would you open our eyes, Lord, again to who you are, Jesus, what that means for us, and what does it mean to, to be your people out there in the world? Um, would you do that for us this morning? We pray. Amen. Chapter 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus. He's putting Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right? So we have this conversation between Jesus and a lawyer or a law expert. Don't think of um, our kind of lawyer, okay? Someone who's trained in civil law. This man is an expert in religious law or biblical law. Um, This is a religious scholar um, striking up a bit of a debate with Jesus, and he asks Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, We know it's not a genuine question, right, because we we see there from the start, his heart isn't really soft and desiring to to, to learn and and get an answer from Jesus, uh, because it says he put Jesus to the test, right? So he's an expert in the law, um, and here is this teacher coming into town, this, this, this rabbi, And he's saying some pretty incredible things. He he has some pretty audacious claims, and he has quite a following, right? Uh, Which, as we'll see as we make our way through the gospel, poses quite a threat to the the religious system that they have. Um, So he's like, all right, here's this guy. Let's see how much he knows about the law of Moses. So he tries to trap Jesus. Um, But we see, uh, we see that his question is kind of flawed from the start, isn't it? Right? We, we Christians, we know that his question isn't the right question. It's flawed. We know that on this side of the cross, right? We have the complete scriptures in our hands, right? We've read Ephesians 2, haven't we? We, we know that, that salvation comes by grace through faith. We know that it's, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of, of your works, of things that you do. So his question, it should make us squirm a little, right? We, we should, what would you say? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus, does he pounce on this man's flawed theology? No. 
What does he do? He meets the man's question with a question. That fantastic debating technique. He meets the guy's trap with a trap of his own, but it's a trap of love. Um, so Jesus, he, he says in verse, 26, in verse 26, he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Right? He says, you are an expert of the law. You've, you've read it all. What does the law say? And the man answers Jesus. He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Right, so the law expert, he gets an A+. Right? He, it's, it's the correct answer. Jesus goes on to say it's the correct answer. He, he, he's, essentially what he's done, he's, he's, he's boiled down the entire law of Moses into a single two-part command. And in fact, there's a, a similar exchange in Matthew 22 where the tables are turned and another expert of the law asks Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest command? He's trying to trap him. And Jesus gives the exact same answer that this lawyer gives. He says there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right, right. So Jesus answers this question exactly the same as this lawyer answers the question in Luke chapter 10. It's, it's the entire law of the Old Testament boiled down to a single two-part command. And if you obey that command perfectly... And fully, you're good to go, right? Enjoy your eternal life. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Um, do you see how Jesus is giving a man a loving trap himself? Uh, do you see what he's revealing to the man? And um, you can imagine after Jesus answers this question, do this and you'll live, the, 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 maybe the look that they give each other. I imagine they, they look at each other and they both know. Don't they? The, the, the man knows that he has no hope of doing this perfectly. Jesus knows, this man knows, that he hasn't gone a single day in his life loving God with all of his heart. With, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, with all of his mind. He knows he stands condemned. Right? If the answer is, what must I do to enter into God's kingdom and to inherit eternal life? If the answer to that question is total dependence on God and perfectly, selflessly loving your neighbor, there's no hope of doing that, right? Like, it's... Does anyone in this room, have you even done that today, right? Has anyone in this room since the, more, since the time you got up loved God with all of your heart, right? With all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Has anyone loved the people around you in the way that you would want them to treat you perfectly patient, right? Perfectly loving, perfectly kind and caring, Jesus knows this man has not kept this law a single minute since the day he was born. And in that aspect, this expert of the law, he's no different from us. Because none of us have kept the greatest commandment fully from the day we were born. Do you see what he's done? Jesus has, has put 
the most basic form of the law right in front of this man's face, and he says, if you're able to do this perfectly and fully, then you're fine. But if not, you're in trouble. John Calvin talks about the threefold use of the law, uh, but one of the most important functions of the law was for it to act as a mirror in which we see ourselves against the measuring rod of the law of God, which is always a terrible thing to look at, right? Our tendency is not to judge ourselves in comparison to God's law. We tend to just judge ourselves in comparison to the people around us, right? Uh, we, we judge ourselves in comparison to our, our, our friends and our neighbor and the, the people in our city. Um, and when we do that, we usually come out thinking quite highly of ourselves, right? Um, I'm not as bad as her, right? I'm not, I'm not as bad as, as that group over there. In fact, I'm pretty darn good. But it's not so in our comparison to the law of God. R.C. Sproul wrote, once we lift our gaze to heaven and consider what kind of being God is and look into the mirror of his law, then not only do we discover who God is, we also discover who we are. As the Apostle Paul tells us, the function of the law is to act as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ because the law reveals to us our sin. We're unable to understand the mercy of God until we understand the law of God and how the law of God reveals us our sin. It reveals to us our hopeless inability to justify ourselves. You see, the law, it drives us to Christ. That was its job. It drives us to the only one that can truly justify sinners who are unjust. And that's exactly what Jesus does for this man. He puts up the law in front of the man and he says, what do you see? Do you line up? And the answer for this man and the answer for everyone is no, I don't. Sproul went on to say, he said, on the day of judgment, God won't need to remind us of each of the Ten Commandments. He won't need to remind us of the, the holiness code of, of Exodus. He'll simply have to say, did you love me with all of your heart? Did you love me with your entire soul? Did you apply your mind every single day to seeking the deepest possible understanding of my word? And when he asks that, there will be no one, not, not this expert of the law, not you and me, no one will be able to say yes. You cannot justify yourself. So how does the man respond? Did, did he fall on his knees and cry out, oh, I'm, I'm a helpless sinner with no hope of measuring up. Jesus, would you, would you help me anyways? That's how he should have responded, but it's not. Instead, he does the worst possible thing. He tries to justify himself. Look at verse 29. It says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? He, sh he should have been floored by his sinfulness, and he, he should have cried out for grace, but he doesn't. He wants to justify himself. But that is not what Jesus has come for, right? He, he's come to seek and save the lost. Uh, do you remember that scene back in chapter 5 where 
Jesus, he's accused, of, by, the, he's accused by the religious elite of, of, of eating and dining and partying with sinners, right? With tax collectors, with the, with the scum of, of Jewish society. And Jesus says, well, I've not come to call the righteous or those who think they're righteous. I've, I've come to call sinners to repentance, right? Jesus has come to offer forgiveness and grace and eternal life to those who are sinners, to those who are lost, to the worst. But this man, he didn't want to recognize that, that he was in that category of people. He didn't want Jesus to justify him. Instead, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be made right with God on his own merits. And so he sought to do what everyone operating in a workspace religion must do, which is then to try to lower the standards of God to a place where they can be cleared by human means, by human effort. Right? He knows that, that complete and total devotion to God is impossible for a sinner like him. He has, he has no hope of doing that. So instead of crying out for mercy, he tries to lower God's standards to a manageable task, which is what we do, right? And so he asks Jesus, well, well then who's my neighbor? Right? If you're telling me I, I must love my neighbor, well, how expansive is my neighborhood then? Who exactly is in the circle of, of, of people that I should love? You see, in, in, in Jewish culture and tra- Jewish tradition at the time, it was really only the, the Jewish community that was in view for this commandment, right? Those who were unclean, uh, Gentiles, Samaritans, those who were outside of the community, they, they weren't to be included in the mandate to love one's neighbor. So he, he, he's trying to define the borders of his neighborhood. Jesus, he, he could have answered the question really simply, couldn't he have? He could have just said, everyone, right? Uh, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Everyone in the world. Everyone you come into contact, that's who, are, that's who you are to love. And it would have shut down the, the conversation right there. End of discussion, but it's not, right? Because there's, there's so much more he wants this guy to see. Instead, Jesus says, your question reminds me of a story. Let's read the parable again. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to this place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. On the surface, it's a pretty simple story to us, right? Um, There's a guy walking down a dangerous road. Um, He gets jumped by a gang of criminals. They rob him. They beat him nearly to death, and and they leave him lying there, bleeding and barely breathing. And then three different people pass by, 
The, the first two are similar. There's a priest and a Levite. Um, essentially, these are two, two ministers. Okay? These, are, these are two guys who work in the temple. They're, they're professional religious people. And they come by and they see this bloodied man, but they pass by on the other side of the road. And there's at least two things that are, that's interesting about these guys' actions. Firstly, there's, there's one kind of reasonable explanation why they act this way. And I don't know if you've ever seen a, 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 someone who's been beaten half to death. Um, they, they look pretty close to someone who's been beaten to death. Um, it, it's it's kind of hard to tell. And so if these two guys who work in the temple were to, were to touch this dead man, they would become unceremonially, unceremonially clean, which would prevent them from entering into the temple and fulfilling their duties, which, which may explain why they cross on the other side of the road. Ironically, though, um, it, part of their job as Levites and priests was to care for the poor and the needy, right? Part of their job was to give out portions of the temple funds to those who are in need. And so it's, in that sense, it's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it, that they, that they ignore this man who's in desperate need, and they act this way. But they do. They pass by on the other side. They pass by this man in his dire need. But in verse 33, Jesus says, someone does help the man. And shockingly, it was a Samaritan. I mentioned a couple, other, a couple weeks ago the history of the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay? In a nutshell, they hated each other. They, they, for, for a Jew, there was no one more despised than a Samaritan and vice versa. Um, put it this way, if the, if the setting for this parable was 1950s Alabama, then imagine lying there on the side of the road and beaten is a, is a, is a Ku Klux Klan member. And along comes the road is an African-American man who sees the Klansmen lying there and decides to show compassion. And he stops and helps him. It's meant to be shocking, right? It's meant to not really make sense, right? Why would he stop and help this man who, who hated him, who, who, who wanted nothing to do with him? It's the Samaritan that stops and shows this man compassion. And in order to understand the deepest meaning of this parable, you must understand what real biblical compassion is. That, that word is what is the crux of the whole parable. As you can see in the story, in, in the Bible, to have compassion, it, it means something so much deeper than the way that we often use that word in our culture today, right? We tend to cheapen the concept of compassion in our culture, you can, you can feel compassion, can't you, and still walk on the other side of the road, right? You, you, you can feel compassion from a distance, maybe, maybe send a little bit of help from afar. But here we see that true compassion, it goes beyond mere feelings of pity, right? If a person is really compassionate, he doesn't just feel it, he shows it. He takes action, which is exactly what the Samaritan does. Right? So if understanding what, what true compassion is to understanding the story, take a look at Psalm 103. Um, this helps us. Psalm 103.13 says, as a father who's who shows compassion to his children, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Right? So, so that verse, it, it points to a, a father's care of his children to show us what compassion is, right? The question is, what father would, would leave his child lying half dead in the ditch because he has an appointment elsewhere? No, no good father, right? It's an obvious question. It's an obvious answer. A good father, he shows compassion to his child because he loves him dearly, because he's responsible for them, right? Compassion is seen in a parent's love for their child. They'd do anything to help them if they were in this situation, right? And, and Psalm 103.13 is ultimately pointing us to not the compassion of an earthly father, but to the compassion that, that God has toward his children, right? There's no compassion like a loving parent shows towards their children. And so it is to a much even greater degree with the Lord, who has a deep, deep love, right? A deep responsibility. He has a perfect fatherly compassion for his children. There's no compassion like the compassion of God. And how does God ultimately and fully show this compassion for us? Just feeling pity from afar? No, he, he shows this compassion fully and, and completely by sending his only son to die on the cross in your place. Right? God's compassion for his children took Jesus to the cross. God didn't just feel bad for us. He didn't just pity us from afar. His compassion brought Jesus right into our most desperate situation. In Jesus, he doesn't just pass by and say, you all right, mate? Do you need a bit of change? No, he, he demonstrated that compassion by doing everything to heal us and to redeem us. And we see that kind of compassion in this Samaritan on his journey. He sees this man in his dire need. And when he sees him, he has compassion he had compassion, and then what? Well, his compassion leads him to take action. He goes to him. He goes directly to him. He is, this man is still bleeding. He, he's barely hanging on, so he has no idea where these robbers are. Are they still hiding? Are they waiting for their next victim? He doesn't care. He goes right into harm's way. He risks it all in order to help this man live. He goes to him, and he binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him. And he puts him on his own animal, which means that, that he was going to have to walk the, the rest of the way. And he brings him to a safe place, to a refuge. And he, he takes care of him there. And, and then he pays for everything himself. He pays the cost. Right? He, 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 he says, here's some money, innkeeper. If it, if, if it costs you more money to take care of this guy while I'm away, don't worry about it. I'll pay you when I get back. Right? I'm footing this bill. He, he wants to make it clear, this man owes nothing. The debt's on me. Such compassion, right? Such actions of love from this man. 
towards someone that was considered his worst enemy. Are, are you seeing that in the, the deepest sense, this parable, it's showing us the gospel. It, it's showing us what, what God has done for us. Right? The, the, this is one of the most well-known parables in our entire kind of world, right? Everyone knows the story of the Good Samaritan, and we use that phrase in many ways, right? Ah, he, he stopped and helped that old man change his flat tire. What a Good Samaritan. We're to be Good Samaritans in this world, and that's totally true. Jesus, we'll see, he makes that point. But we, we usually see ourselves in this parable as the Good Samaritan walking along, helping homeless person on the side of the road. Give him some money, right? Be a good Samaritan. Which again, is a good thing. Jesus wants us to do that. But listen to me. You will never, ever understand the true meaning of this story unless you see yourself in the parable, not as the hero of the story, but as the helpless, bloody man dying on the side of the road. Right? And unless someone comes along to rescue him with a sacrificial neighbor love, he will certainly perish. And we are in that same condition. That, 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 that's our story. We, we are in desperate need of someone to show us love and compassion and grace in our sin-sick condition, or else we will perish. Do you see from, from that perspective, Jesus' parable, it's showing us the gospel. Jesus is the true good Samaritan, He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He, he came to us while we were still his enemies. He, he, he met us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He fulfilled the requirements and paid the price so that our wounds might be healed. And then he brings us to a safe place to find rest for our souls. He does it all. He pays for it all. We, we do nothing in the process. We do nothing in our salvation besides accepting his grace by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection for us that we can inherit eternal life. You see, with Jesus' parable, he's answering both of the lawyer's questions. The first question that he asks is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And with this story, Jesus is saying, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Your best attempts result in total disaster. You are a helpless, dying man on the side of the road, and you need me. You need me to come along and show you my compassion. You need me to bind up your wounds and bring you to safety. You have no way of paying for this. You've been robbed completely, but I will pay it. Right, so, so he answers that, that first question, but he also answers the man's second question when he says, well, who is my neighbor then? Okay, but again, he answers that question with another question, you follow me? In verse 36, right, Jesus asks him, after telling the parable, which one of these three who come along, which do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see what Jesus is doing? He gives him a whole new question, right? The, the lawyer was asking the wrong question again. With his question, he's attempting to exclude neighbors. 
He's, he's attempting to, to lower the, the, the level to a manageable task. He was trying to shrink his neighborhood to a manageable number. No outsiders, surely. And Jesus says, the correct answer is not, who is my neighbor? The correct answer is, how can I be a loving neighbor to everyone, even my worst enemy? And so the man, he answers Jesus' final question, almost having to like bite his tongue, right? Like he can't even bring himself to say, oh, the Samaritan. He's like, I guess the third guy. <laughs> the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Right, so, so firstly, the parable, it, it shows us the gospel but also, it's a call to be a gospel-shaped people. Right? See what God has done for you. See, see how Jesus saved you when you could not save yourself. See how Jesus has saved you when you wanted nothing to do with him. And because he has shown you such compassion, such grace, go and be like him. Go and show that same compassion to everyone else, even your enemy. Go and embody this gospel with your own lives. This is gospel neighboring. Martin Luther, when asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor? He replied, it means you have to be Christ to your neighbor. I love that phrase. Go be Christ to your neighbor. Now, he, he wasn't saying that you can ever save your neighbor, Right? Or, or you're some kind of uh, savior in their life that you can offer atonement for them. No, he'd be the last person to, to say that. He simply means that go and do for your neighbor what Jesus would do for them if he was there. Go and do for your neighbor what Jesus has done for you so that your neighbor will see Jesus working through you. Right? That's what gospel neighboring looks like. That's the call for every disciple of Jesus. And just as we close, hear this one last important point. Um, you must see where the power is for living this life. You must see where the power is for actually living this way. If I'm completely honest, the man's question in verse 30 actually kind of seems reasonable to me. Who am I to love? Who is my neighbor? Surely not everybody. Where's the limit? And Jesus says, there is no limit. There are no boundaries to whom you are to show compassion to. Everyone is your neighbor. Which again, if I'm completely honest, seems really hard. Do you find that hard? I think it's, it, in some ways it seems impossible. What about the person who's only shown me contempt when I've only shown them grace? What about the person or that group who's only slandered my name? Compassion for them, Jesus? Jesus says, yes, 
That's the call. It's costly. It's really sacrificial. It's dangerous. But that's my way. But listen, the the power for living that way, it lies, again, not in you seeing yourself as the hero in that story. The power lies in us being the bloody, dying person on the side of the road. Right? The, the, the helpless person that the Jesus has to come directly towards and show compassion to, despite having every right and reason to cross by the other side of the road himself and to leave you for dying. But he doesn't. Right? D- despite having every reason to reject you and, and to choose to go the other way, he instead chooses to love you. Isn't that amazing? He chooses to, to show compassion to us, to take care of your every need. Right there is the power. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because, what? He first loved us. We love because he first loved us. It's as simple as that. that that's where the power lies in living this sacrificial life of love. It's knowing Romans 5, right, that says that God demonstrated his his love to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to say, while we were enemies, he puts it that way, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's where the power is, right? The the, the power lies in the gospel. The power lies in, in knowing what Jesus has done for you. Listen, you, you will not find any kind of power in going out there and, and, and trying to love your neighbor because Jesus told you to do so. There's no power there. There's no power in following orders. You will only find power in loving others when you remember the gospel. When you remember that Jesus first loved you. You will only find power in showing compassion and grace and mercy to your worst enemy because of the compassion that Jesus showed you when you didn't deserve it. We love because he first loved us. Being a disciple of Jesus means being a gospel-shaped neighbor. Just stand with me and we'll pray.